But today we'll be in Proverbs chapter 25. Chapter 25, and we did the first 14 verses last week, so we'll pick up in verse 15 today. Proverbs 25, let's read 15 through the end of the chapter. It says, By forbearance a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Have you found honey? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomit it. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, or he will become weary of you and hate you. Like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. Like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in time of trouble. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. Like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. Like a city that is broken in two and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today that you might, again, teach and instruct us, Lord, in, Lord, in the way of wisdom. Lord, knowing that the gospel, the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, Lord, we see that Christ crucified is the wisdom and power of God unto salvation. But Lord, we know that this salvation that you have begun in us, Lord, will manifest itself. Lord, it will bear good fruit in us. And that it will result in living a life of wisdom, Lord, a life of godliness. And so, Lord, we want to live the life of Christ. Lord, we want his life to shine through us. And, Lord, we pray that you might conform our thoughts, Lord, our values, Lord, our words, our actions, Lord, all that we do, that you might conform it to the very life of Christ, and that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So, Lord, teach us today how to live before you, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15, says, for, it says, By forbearance a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Here, we're dealing with the issue of not only what we say, but the manner in which we say it. And especially when you're dealing with someone who is a superior, someone who is a ruler, someone who is over you, who does not have some obligation to do what you tell them to do, right? The man going to the ruler has no authority over him. In terms of position and rank in life, the, ruling, the ruler has authority, and the subject is the one who is in submission to him. However, the subject may have wisdom, may have counsel, may have advice that is needful and that would be useful for the ruler to adhere to and for him to incorporate into his kingdom. And if that ruler is on the fence, or if initially he is adverse to such wisdom and counsel, what is the best way to proceed in order to win the heart and the mind and the actions of the ruler? Is it coming to him in uh, a rage, coming to him belligerently, uh, speaking to him harshly, disrespectfully? Is that going to win him over to your cause? 
Or is it better to come with him with forbearance, with patience, with a soft tongue? To come in a humble way and to make your plea and to present your case to him and then to give him time and patience, not to badger him, but to follow up in a respectful, in a calm, in a rational way. And here it is the mild, gentle persuasions. It is the patient waiting by which a ruler is persuaded to listen to the counsel of one of his advisors. The same counsel could be the exact same words, the exact same counsel, if given in haste, if given in heat, with a haughty spirit, he's going to reject it. He's not going to listen to it, right? This person, in the way that they come, so prejudices the ruler against what they say that there's no way he's going to listen to them, even if it's going to be a great benefit and value to them, because their attitude and their sourness uh, predisposes him against listening to their words. And this is showing us the benefit of a soft answer, of gentle and a calm, composed approach. If the ruler can even be persuaded in such ways, then how much more those who are our equals, those who are our peers, this is the way that we ought to be in the household of faith. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. The gentle answer turns wrath away, but harsh words, this is what stirs up anger. Even if what the harsh words are communicating, it may be true. It may be true and right, but if it's done in this way, then it's going to turn people against it because of the sourness in which it is communicated to them. An example of this would be Abigail when she appealed to David. She did not come to him in a haughty, belligerent way, but she came very humble. She came as his subject. She bowed herself. She prostrated herself before him. She presented gifts to him. She came about it in a proper way, and through her disposition, she won David over to her wise counsel. And what she told him was good. It was proper. This is what he ought to do. And it wasn't just that what she spoke to him was true, but the way that she spoke these things was cloaked and clothed with genuine humility and gentleness and a soft and a compassionate way. True words spoken in a haughty, harsh spirit, they're going to be rejected. People will likely not listen to the words, even if they're true, if they are perceived, if they are coming from this haughty way. They're just going to dig their heels in against it because they don't like the person. They don't like the way that they're saying and that they're doing these things. And it will be a stumbling block for people to listen to the truth. So this is the way it is, especially when we're dealing with sin, when we're dealing with conflict, when we're dealing with contention, which is going to happen in our families, in our homes. It's going to happen in the church as well. It's going to happen in society. Wherever we are and wherever there are people, and those people still possess the flesh, there's always going to be sin and there's always going to be conflict and contention. We can come to those conflicts and to those issues and we can pour gasoline upon them and cause them to rage and to burn hotter so that it blows up and causes strife and contention to an even greater degree. Or we can come to those situations and do everything that we can to mitigate and to bring about peace and reconciliation and restoration. And one of the ways that we can bring about peace, though again, it cannot be guaranteed. It, there are some people who are so opposed to the truth, it doesn't matter how gentle you are. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ was gentle, he was lowly, he was humble in the way that he came to people, and yet they still put him to death because they hated his message. However, in that case, it's not because of his haughtiness and because of his abrasiveness that people turned away from him. It's just on the basis and merit of the truth. But if we come in a very haughty way, then people are going to reject us, not necessarily because of the truth. It may be that they hate the truth as well, but they're just going to be turned off from us because we're you know, being jerks toward them. And nobody likes, a, nobody, nobody likes a jerk, right? Nobody wants to be around that person. So there are those who hate the truth and who will reject the messenger, even if the messenger has kindness and good intentions. But if the messenger is mean-spirited, harsh, belligerent with the people, then the people are going to reject the truth, even if it's right. So we need to speak the truth, but we need to speak it in the right way. And the right way, according to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15, is with forbearance and a soft tongue. A soft, gentle tongue, not a harsh, belligerent tongue in the way that we come before people. Verse 16, have you found honey? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomit it. Here, the principle is teaching uh, from the physical world some general truth uh, that is should be applied out to many other areas of life, not just with the eating of honey. Though it is true that if you eat too much honey, you're going to get a, a tummy ache, and you may even vomit out the honey. The honey is something that's sweet. It's something that's good. It is something that is delightful to the taste. However, even that good, sweet, delightful thing, if abused, if not received with moderation can produce results that are not pleasant because who likes to vomit right no one likes to vomit it's a very miserable experience to go through so this good thing if taken in excess can become something that is very painful and that is very distasteful though initially it was good and sweet to the taste well this is true in many areas of life we have to access or we have to exercise moderation Moderation in the way that we eat, moderation in what we drink, moderation in what we enjoy, moderation in everything, in every aspect of life. The only thing that we are not expected to practice practice in moderation is the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. There is no law saying, well, only love a little bit. Don't do it too much, because if you do it too much, it may be bad for you. It's never going to be bad for you to love too much, and you can never love too much, because what is the expectation? To love God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Never can you have too much love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control that are rightly practiced, the fruits of the Spirit. There is no restraint. There is no moderation on them. But in many areas of life, we do need to practice moderation in things of this world. Things of this world that there may be a place for in the child of God. We all have to eat. We all have to drink. We all need to sleep. It's okay for a person to have hobbies and things that he enjoys doing. But if you do any of those things in excess, then they become harmful and pernicious to you. So we must be able to exercise moderation, self-control whenever we are pursuing these kinds of things. Verse 17. Here's an example. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house or he will become weary of you and hate you. Here, a practical way in which you need to practice moderation. Having a friend 
is a good thing. Having a neighbor that you're on friendly terms with, right? That's not a bad thing. That makes your life better, right? That is something that is good. So that is like the honey. The honey is sweet. The honey is pleasant. The honey makes your life better. But do not abuse this relationship by overstaying your welcome. If you go to your neighbor's house two or three hours every day, then eventually what's going to happen to the relationship between you and your neighbor? You're going to spoil it, right? Because you're abusing it. You're taking advantage of it, right? You are overstepping what is reasonable, right? It's okay to be with your neighbor here and there, to see him here and there, but do so in moderation, right? Don't overstay your welcome. Don't go there every day and spend hours there and never go home and tend to your own affairs. Because if you do that, then he's never going to be able to do the things that he needs to do. Because he is a hospitable man, then his attention is going to be upon you. But there are things that a man needs to attend to in his own home, in his own affairs, with his own family, with his own estate, that he can't do if visitors are there. He can't go mow his yard, but he needs to mow his yard, right? He can't go and work on uh, this or that project that he has around the house, those honeydews, you know. And if honey's not happy, then everyone's going to be miserable. So you gotta, you got to have time to do those things. But if the neighbor is there all the time, and then they always want to eat your food as well, right? Well, you're going, to, uh, you're going to eat the man out of house and home. So don't be there all the time. That's the point that he's making there, right? It's fine to have friends. It's fine to have neighbors. It's good and fine to want to be with them, to want to spend time with them. But do not go there too frequently, lest your neighbor <clears throat> begin to hate you. He's going to become weary of you, and then he's going to start hating you. He's going to start dreading seeing you. He's going to go, oh gosh, not again. Do we have to go through this again? How, how long is it going to be? This is the way he's going to be. And then the relationship that initially was very positive, was very sweet, was mutually beneficial. What's going to happen to that relationship? It's going to be, be sour. And now it's going to be distasteful. And you're going to want to vomit it up, right? Vomit the relationship up, and then you'll become more bitter. You'll become more harsh. You'll become more impatient. And then they're going to see the friction that's caused and the tension that is there. And then they're going to respond. And eventually, the whole thing may blow up, and it's not going to be good for anyone. So practice moderation in those things. Verse 18, like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. A club, a sword, a sharp arrow. These are weapons used to maim and weapons used to kill. Well, in the same way as these bring harm to the physical body, so a man who bears false witness against his neighbor, he uses his words. His words are like sharp arrows, like sharp swords, like a club that he uses to beat, to ridicule, to trash, to maim the good reputation, the name, the character of his neighbor. And this is what it is like when someone bears false witness against their neighbor. They are ruining, destroying the reputation of this man, the character of this man, the name of this man. Before, everyone had a high view of him. But now, when someone bears false witness against him, now all of these people, all of these friends, if they believe these lies, now they are convinced that this person is an evil, horrible person. He has ruined his name using false witness, not based upon the truth. Now, if someone is himself, you know, a horrible person, his own, his own deeds will manifest that. His own words will prove 
that he is a fool. But here, it's not his deeds and words that are doing this. It's the false words of the lying neighbor. Proverbs 11.9 says, With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. The mouth of the godless destroys his neighbor. So, this is unbecoming of children of God. The children of God should not behave in this way. We ought to love our neighbor. And part of loving our neighbor is not to bear false witness against him. Not to speak lies against him. right? And to do whatever we can to preserve and protect the name, the reputation, the character of our neighbor. And we should not easily or needlessly or sinfully destroy those things. Only if it is absolutely necessary. If your neighbor is a serial killer, okay, well then you need to tell people, you know, this is who this guy is, right? If he's a harm and threat to other people, they need to know those things for their benefit. That's loving them because they don't want their children playing around this guy or they don't want, uh, you know, to fall in, in him, kill them, right? And those kinds of things. But that's if there's actually legitimate proven sin. All right, but when it comes to just disagreements or I don't like this person or he said this, then, then that, it's going beyond what we are called to do and it's unbecoming of Christians to behave in such ways. Verse 19, like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in a time of trouble. Here, a bad tooth, an unsteady foot. Both of these things are hindrances. Right, the one to eating, the other to walking. They cause pain, right? They make it difficulty, they make it uneasy, they make it hurtful and harmful to do those things that are common, right? We like to eat, but if you have a bad tooth, then eating becomes a great difficulty. We need to walk, but if you have an unsteady foot, then that which is common and which is needful becomes very difficult to do. Well, so is also a faithless man. A faithless man and confidence in him in the time of trouble is going to be, uh, bring about pain, is going to bring about suffering. It will make you also very unsteady, right? It, he becomes a cause of grief and of heartache because when the friend is needed most, right? When do we need a friend more than any other time? Well, it's during the times of trouble. This was when we really need a friend. When everything is good and fine, and we have no problems in the world, we need friends at those times as well to share in our joys. But when we really need a friend is when we're going through times of trouble and we need someone to hold us up. We need someone to comfort us. We need someone to encourage us. We need someone to strengthen us, to help us, to deliver us. This is when the friend is most needed during the time of trouble. And yet a faithless friend during a time of trouble, where is he at? He's nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be found, right? All of his friends have deserted him, and they are nowhere to be found. And so it compounds the grief, the sorrow, the trouble. It makes it even worse. Just like the bad tooth makes eating harder, so also the time of trouble is more difficult to endure because not only do you have the original trouble that came upon you, the original sorrow or affliction that is causing your life harm and disarray, but now on top of that, you've been betrayed by the faithless friend who makes it even more difficult and now it, it, it adds an additional wound uh, that one has to deal with. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5. Proverbs 17, 5. 
says, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. He rejoices at your calamity. He proves himself to be faithless during the time of need. Now, the contrast to this is that there is a friend that sticks closer to a brother. And that's what we need to be for one another. However, in this present life, there will always be, we will always fail in this. But who is the ultimate friend that sticks closer to a brother? Who will never let us down. He will never forsake us. He will never prove faithless during our times of trouble. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the friend that will stick closer to a brother. And it is in him and him alone that we must put our ultimate confidence. Jeremiah 17, 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. If we hope in men, we will be disappointed. But if we hope in Christ, we will never be disappointed. 20, verse 20, 25, 20. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Here, the garment on the cold day, right? It's already cold outside. You're already cold. Everyone's miserable when it's cold. Well, then you take the garment off when it's cold, and what happens to your misery? It increases, right? It increases. Now you're even more cold than you were before. Or like vinegar on soda. When you pour the vinegar onto the soda, it irritates it, right? It causes it to hiss and to bubble and to give off this discharge. It disturbs that which was at, previously it was at calm, But then when you add the vinegar to the soda, it causes it to bubble up and it disturbs its peace so that it is irritated and aroused in such ways. And this is what the one who sings to a troubled heart, to the troubled soul. When the person is troubled, when he's going through some hardship or some affliction, does he want someone coming along, making merry, laughing and joking, you know, cutting it up, singing songs, merry songs like that? He doesn't want to hear those things. If his wife has just died, if he's just lost uh, one of his children, he needs someone to come and comfort him, to sympathize with him, right? To speak kindly to him. He doesn't need someone to come and sing songs to him, right? Like Job's friends, though Job's friends had their issues. However, you have to give them this, that when Job went through that, they came and sat with him in complete silence for many days just to be there with him in his presence in order to be a source of comfort to him. And had they remained in that state, they would have been a source of comfort. It was when they opened their mouths that things began to go awry. Well, this is what we need to be able to practice. We need to understand what the occasion calls for. And when someone is troubled in heart, they don't need me coming, yapping, talking uh, 100 miles an hour, making jokes, cracking this, cracking that. What they need is someone to sit there with them, to listen to them, to comfort them, to, for their words to be few, but to be filled with sympathy and compassion for them. That will relieve them during their time of trouble. 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Here, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him drink. This is loving your enemy, doing good to those who persecute you. If he's hungry, he has this need, and you have the ability to meet that need, then you should meet the need. 
If he is thirsty, he has this need, and you have the ability to meet the need, then you should meet the need. In doing this, you are loving your enemy. You're doing good to those who persecute you. So the Old Testament does teach that we are to love our neighbor, and that that neighbor includes not only those who are friendly toward me, but it even includes our enemies, right? Those who are persecuting us, those who hate us, we are to love even them. So when Jesus is asked this question about loving your enemy and who is your neighbor and loving your neighbor and, uh, and you've, heard, you've, you've heard that it was said you are to love your neighbor and you hate your enemy, right? these people were misinterpreting the Old Testament because obviously this is clearly in the Old Testament. This is under the law of Moses and yet here this principle is still being taught of loving your enemy. And the apostle uses this passage, this is a passage that he quotes in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21, there the apostle quotes this passage when he is speaking of loving your enemy, blessing those who persecute you, doing good to those who hate you. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is the truth that we need. Don't be overcome with evil. If you have an enemy, then it presupposes that he has committed some evil against you. There is something between the two of you And if you are in the right, and if you are a good neighbor, then he has committed some evil against you. Well, how do we overcome that evil? Do we do so by doing evil to him? No, you overcome it with good. You do good to him, you repay his evil with good, not with more evil. And in so doing, you prove yourself to be children of your Father who is in heaven, because he causes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust. He does good to all men. And if we do good and we love only those who love us, what different are we than the Gentiles? Don't the Gentiles do these things? But if we're going to be like our Father in heaven, then we need to love our enemies. And in doing this, it's going to produce peace with men, which is something else that we should pursue. If I have an enemy and I throw eggs at his house, is that going to bring peace between the two of us? No. But if he's hungry and I give him something to eat, that may soften his hard heart and at least cause him to act civilly toward me instead of trying to harm me or persecute me or kill me. And maybe it's the means that God uses to win him to the faith and to turn him from being my enemy into my brother. So, Do good to them. If they're hungry, give them food. If they're thirsty, give them drink. Do acts of kindness toward them. And in so doing, you will it will put them to shame because it will be obvious the difference between the two of you. They have done evil to you, and now when they've done the evil to you, 
everyone would say, well, you have a right to repay them and to get back with them. But when you return their evil with goodness and kindness, is this not going to cause your light to shine before all men? It's going to be an evidence, it's going to be a display to all men of the type of person that you are, of the change that has been brought about in your life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that may be the light that God uses to win this person to the Lord or to be a testimony to other people of the Lord and what the Lord has done in your life. And then if it does not lead to their repentance, then maybe it will at least lead to their civility and that they'll no longer be treating you this way. And then if it doesn't do that, then ultimately on the day of judgment, it's going to heap more condemnation on them because it's going to prove that everything they did to you was unjust and it was unright and it was only because of their hatred of Christ and their hatred of the truth that they treated you in this way. So in the end, are we going to lose by doing good to our enemies? No, we're going to win all the way across the board. We may win doubly, both in this life and the life to come. But for sure, we're going to win in the life to come. So do good to our neighbor, love them, even if they are our enemy, and even if there is some animosity there, we ought to still pursue and promote their well-being and good for them. Verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue, an angry countenance. Here, the north wind brings forth rain, right? When the wind comes out of the north, uh, I don't know if it's true in our part of the world, but it is in their part of the world. The north wind, when it comes, when it blows in that way, then many times it would bring a rain with it, right? This is what would happen. This is result of the blowing of the north wind. Well, just as the north wind brings forth rain, so the backbiting tongue brings forth an angry countenance. Here, the backbiting tongue, right? The backbiting because they don't bite you to your face. They won't say these things to your face. They won't tell you what they really think about you. But where will they say it? Behind your back. They'll bite you in the back. This is what dogs do. <clears throat> they, many times, if a dog is aggressive towards you, and you're looking at them, and you, they, they always want to get around behind you because they want to come up and bite you from, from the rear, you know, or, or on the back of the heel, especially those little bitty ones, you know, those little nuisance that you can just kick them, punt them is what you need to do. That's what the dog wants to do. And if you'll face them, many times they'll never attack you because they want to come up from behind you. And this is how many people are as well. Uh, they like to talk bad about others, but they want to do it behind their back. They show that they have no genuine interest in this person. Because if there is some legitimate issue that needs to be addressed, who's the first person we should talk to about it? It's the actual person. And should we do it behind their back or to their face? We should do it to their face. And we should do it, as we saw earlier, with forbearance and a soft tongue. Right? Hoping to produce repentance. Hoping and for their best and for their good and for their benefit. But if a person will only talk about others behind their back, well, they show that they have no genuine interest or care for this person. That is not loving your enemy. That is hating them, and it's not going to make anything better. Because now, when they find out that you've been running them down behind their back, what kind of a countenance are they going to have? Is it going to endear them to you? No. It's going to make you become more bitter. You're going to hate them. You're going to have anger toward them because they've been running you down and it's got back around to you. And eventually, 
it's going to get back around, right, if we're doing these kinds of things. So it's not going to produce anything good. It's going to produce anger, and the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we shouldn't be practicing that as Christians. We should not be backbiters, gossips, slanderers, those who speak evil behind others, behind their back. Verse 24. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Marriage, one of the purposes of marriage, right, is that it's not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, God made a helper that was suitable for him. In the original state of creation, when there was only the man and not the woman, the man was not complete. He needed the woman to complete him. It was not good for him to be alone. So God designed the woman as the helper, as the completion that was made for the man, right? Man was not made for woman, but woman was made for the man. This is the solution that God provided for the need that Adam had. And that need went before even our fall. So this is not something that is just for the sinful world, but even before sin entered into the world, God instituted marriage and God created them male and female. And the expectation, what is commonly seen and practiced in the world, is that a man will marry a woman. And that in doing so, it is an increase, it is a benefit, a blessing to his life when a man marries a woman. When a man marries a man, it's impossible because that's not marriage. <clears throat> when a woman marries a woman, it's impossible because it's not true marriage as it is defined by the Bible. God created marriage. God defines marriage. It is between one man and one woman. And the purpose of marriage is to bring happiness, bliss, to both the man and the woman because the man needs a woman and the woman needs the man. None of us are whole and complete in and of ourselves. Marriage is supposed to increase one's happiness, increase their standing, their status, their blessedness in this present life. This is the way that it should work. This is why in Proverbs 18.22, it says, he who, he who obtains a wife obtains a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. If you get a wife, he says, it is a good thing and it is a sign of favor, a blessing from God. This is the way marriage should be, and this is the way that we ought to look at it. However, if the man marries a contentious woman, is that going to increase his happiness or his misery? Well, here it's going to increase misery. And that's why he says it's better to live on the corner of the roof. That is not typically a place that would be delightful to live out on the corner of a roof, to be exposed to the heat during the summer, to be exposed to the cold during the winter, and all the miseries that come living out there, out in the cold, out in the rain, in the elements, right? We would say that this is a very unhappy existence to have to live under such conditions. Yet here, that's a better situation than living with a contentious woman. So yes, marriage is good, and yes, he who obtains a wife gets a good thing and, and receives favor and blessing from the Lord, but it needs to be the right kind of wife. It needs to be a godly wife. It needs to be one who brings peace and harmony to the home because if she brings contention to the home, then there's just going to be constant conflict, turmoil, bickering, fighting in the home. It's going to be between the husband and wife, 
And if that's what's going on between the husband and wife, it's going to be between the father and the children, between the mother and the children, between the children and the children. Everyone's going to be miserable. It's not going to be a happy home. It's not going to be a good place to raise children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. So this is why we should want a godly wife and why we should practice discernment with our young men uh, as fathers and then the young men need to have their head on straight right, and not be looking merely at the outward beauty, but looking at the hidden beauty that is there in the heart. But also, this applies the other way as well. It's not only the contentious woman that is a source of problem, but if there's a contentious man, or if he's a deadbeat, then that's going to make her life miserable. In the case of Nabal and Abigail, Abigail was the good one. Nabal was the problem there in that household, and he would have been a source of misery for her. So it works both ways. Here it's stated in terms of the woman because it's typically written here uh, in a, because the Bible's patriarchal. <coughs> it actually it is because uh, it, it teaches that men were created first and that men should be the head of the home. So it's written in this way because he's writing it to his son for his benefit, but it applies both ways as well. We ought to desire godly young women for our young men and we ought to desire godly young men for our young women and hope that the homes are then established in those ways. And there's a lot that we can see early on. Before a person is married, you can see those signs of those who are going to be contentious women. And they need to overcome and fight against such things. Verse 25. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. Cold water to the weary soul. When a person is hot, when he's tired, when he's been out working all day long, a drink of cold water brings great refreshment to the soul, great refreshment to the person. Well, this is how it is when there is good news from a distant land. Whenever he hears of one of his family members uh, and he hears that they're doing well and that things are going well with them, then this brings great joy to him. It refreshes him to know that his loved one in this distant land, things are going well with him. Or when he sends word to find out about this or that affair, or this or that uh, business that is going on there, and he receives back a good report, it refreshes him. It gives him strength. It encourages him. Now, nowhere is this more true than with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel is itself news from a distant land. It is news that came down to us out of heaven, out of a distant land, out of a heavenly country. And it is news that has come to us that does bring great refreshment to the soul because the gospel teaches us how we can have our sins forgiven, how we can be reconciled to God, how we can have peace with God and have eternal life with him and be adopted and brought into his family. It is the gospel who te that teaches us these things and brings great refreshment, invigorating to the very soul's of men. 26. 26. Like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. A trampled spring in a polluted well. The spring and the well are useful, they're beneficial when they're producing good, fresh water that is useful to men. But if the spring is trampled by men or by animals, and they dirty it, they muddy it, they pollute it, then that spring is no longer useful. A well that is polluted, like they might do this sometimes with their enemies, throw some dead animals down there. Are you going to want to drink water from a well that's got dead animals in it? 
No, it's going to make that water useless. It's no longer a benefit or a value to you anymore. Well, like the trampled spring and like the polluted well, this is what a righteous man is like who gives way before the wicked. The righteous man is a source of wisdom so long as he is maintaining his righteousness. But if that righteous man gives way and becomes like the wicked, is he now going to be a source of wisdom, a source of instruction, of counsel that we can go to and be taught the will of God? Well, not anymore. He gave way to the wicked. So now this former source of wisdom and counsel is no longer so. He's been polluted, polluted by the wisdom of this world. And whenever you mix the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world, then it's no longer any value to you, right? It becomes something that is trampled, something that is no longer valuable. 27, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. Here, back to, back to the honey, right? It's not good to eat too much honey. Well, it also is not good to search out one's own glory. Men want rank, they want position, they want glory, they want honor in this world. And many people will promote their own well-being. They want everyone to know all their accomplishments, all that they have done. They are very good at boasting at all their successes, and they want everyone to know these things. Well, is it good to glorify thyself, to glorify yourself? No, it is not glory to search out one's own glory to search it out, to seek it out, and to make it known to all these other men. We should not do that. Now, if we have successes, if we have attainments and accomplishments, then that's good and fine. And if we receive recognition and glory and honor, and it comes honestly and naturally without us seeking it out and trying to make ourselves great, then that's good and fine, and we need to be able to receive that and hold that and not become proud and arrogant and give praise and thanks to God. But many men are not content to let God exalt them and let God glorify them. What do they feel like they need to do? They need to promote themselves. And they're constantly doing so in order that everyone will know how great they are in all of their accomplishments. This is what was going on that Jesus addresses in John chapter 5 with the religious leaders there. The giving and receiving glory and honor to one another. They were happy to glorify and to honor each other, but they did not seek the glory that comes from the only God. But we ought to seek that glory and not be concerned with promoting ourselves in the vain glory that comes with this life. An example of this would be in Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, Haman was certainly one who had a very high opinion of himself, a very inflated view of himself. And whenever the king sought to honor someone, Haman was convinced that there could be no other man that the king would want to honor other than me, right? Because there's no one as great as me. And yet his seeking out his own glory ultimately led to his downfall and to his shame. Esther chapter 6. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh to the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? 
Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Notice here, Mordecai had done something praiseworthy. Did his deed deserve honor and glory? Absolutely it did. But he didn't receive it. It, it was overlooked. It, it's not that they were willfully neglecting him. It just nothing ever happened to properly recognize and honor and glorify Mordecai. But was Mordecai fretting, unable to sleep at night, waking up in a cold sweat because he felt like he'd been slighted and, and jipped off and no one gave him the honor that he deserved? He wasn't doing those things. Was he going around trying to uh, hint to the king? You know, man, you remember that one time those two guys tried to overthrow you? Boy, that was something else, wasn't it? You know, hoping to bring it into his attention. He wasn't doing those things. He did his responsibility, what it is that he ought to do as a faithful subject to the king. And then he did not receive the glory and honor that he deserved, but that was okay. He just kept on being faithful to the Lord and doing what he was called to do. And then, in due time, who exalted him? God exalted him. Yes, God exalted him. And God did it in a way far superior to what Mordecai could have ever hoped or dreamt of. Okay, And he did it in a way that ultimately brought about not only his honor, but the salvation of his entire people, of all of the Jews. Okay, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to the, one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. And then we know the rest of it is that this happened to Mordecai and Haman was the prince who was charged to lead him through the city, proclaiming the greatness and the glory and the honor of Mordecai. Here, Haman sought his own glory, and yet he received none. Mordecai, on the other hand, did not seek his glory, and he was exalted. And this is the way it went. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then verse 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. A city without walls, it has no protection. It is exposed to all enemies. It is wide open for anyone to come in, to ravage it, to take from it, to loot it, to destroy it. Well, a city without walls is what a man who has no control over his spirit is like. A man who does not have self-control, who cannot rule his spirit, who cannot control his passions, his affections, he is going to be exposed to sin, to temptations, to trials. He's going to be exposed to Satan and every sort of sin and temptation imaginable if he cannot rule his Spirit. We must bring our bodies under subjection to Christ. 
we must practice self-control over these things. Now, again, naturally, no one can do this. We are like animals in our natural state. We're like brute beasts. Our God is our belly, and we're driven to and fro by these passions that wage war within us. And even as believers, we still have passions that are waging war within us. And who is it that teaches us to say no to these passions, to keep them under control? Or who is it that keeps them in check for us? It is only the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish this. But he doesn't do it apart from us. He does it in us, and he does it through us. So we must practice self-control. We must rule over our affections, over our passions, so that our spirit has, is controlled and there's boundaries so that we're not open to sin and temptation. We must practice this wisdom in the way that we live, and this will deal with a lot of areas of sin and temptation that we need to practice self-control in in this way. Okay, well, with that, we'll conclude there for today, and we will pick up next week in Proverbs chapter 26. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do pray that this wisdom that has been dispensed to us, Lord, that your word has made known to us, Lord, a wisdom that is sweeter than honey, Lord, also more valuable than gold and silver and fine jewels. Lord, we pray that we might see the beauty and the value of such things. Lord, that this wisdom would be sweet to our taste and that, Lord, we would desire it and seek to incorporate it into our lives. Lord, we pray that, Lord, we would be humble before you. Lord, we pray that you might exalt us and lift us up in due time. And Lord, that you would help us to live faithfully before you each and every day. Lord, not desiring the praise of men, but Lord, living our life before our God. Lord, knowing that what we do in secret, you see, and that Lord, you will reward us in due time. So Father, help us to live by faith throughout this week. Lord, to not uh, think of our own interests, but Lord, to love our neighbor and to, to do good to them. Lord, help us to control our spirits. Lord, give us greater control over our passions and our affections. Lord, so that we are not driven by these things, but we have mastery over them and we're able to bring them into submission uh, to Christ. Lord, we know that the Christian life is impossible for us, Lord, through our own strength. Lord, apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. But with you in us and working through us, Lord, we can do all things. And so, Father, we pray that you might pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, in even greater measure, and that, Lord, we would be more and more uh, submissive to the Spirit, and that we would walk according to his leading, and, Lord, not according to the flesh. Lord, please give us safety as we travel home today. Lord, we pray that you uh, might be with those who are absent from us today. Lord, especially we think of Mike and Marianne. Lord, in the sickness that they are going through, we pray that you might restore them and bring them back uh, to good health and that they might be restored to us very soon. Lord, give us safety. Lord, be with us and bless us this week. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.